Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. Welcome back, bookends, to another episode where we get to share with you all one of our favourite recent reads. All the Little Liars is a breathless and captivating new thriller. Told across two timelines and tapping into a horrific crime, this novel is a terrifying and compelling story about sisterly love and toxic friendship that asks, how much would you sacrifice to belong? Victoria Salmon is a writer and podcaster. She's the author of the Zebra McKenzie series and her debut novel, Blood for Blood, was an instant Amazon number one bestseller topping the Kindle charts for five weeks. She's been shortlisted for two CWA Dagger Awards and her thriller, Truly Darkly Deeply, was an instant Sunday Times bestseller, a spring 2023 Richard and Judy book club pick and had the film rights sold to Seesaw Films. Victoria is also co-host of the Crime fiction podcast crime time fm and here to chat about her latest book all the little liars is victoria herself so victoria welcome to a pair of bookends thank you thank you for having you on your show so we always love to open with our favorite question which is what are you currently reading what am i reading and you prepped me for this and i'm so glad you did because <laughs> people always go blank when you ask and it's so true isn't it it's and I true go blank so i've had a bit of time to think and i am reading is actually not a crime novel. It's an old favourite, which is Catch It in the Rye. And the reason is, I don't know if other authors that you have on say this, but when you're writing or you're in the middle of a launch, I've just launched All Little Liars, it's been super duper hectic. My brain, it's it almost gets fried. I can't concentrate. And I love to read. And so it's a difficult thing to balance. So my way of dealing with that is just to go back to an old favourite. It's like putting on a pair of slippers, isn't it? Yeah. And Catch It in the Rye is one of my very much all-time favourites. I love the voice. I love the character of, of Holden Caulfield I mean who doesn't and it's just it's such a beautiful story but what's what's amazing for me is when I first read it I was a teenager so you identify in a certain way and now let's just say I'm not a teenager anymore <laughs> and you get something different out of it and it's I love that about wonderful books that they evolve as you evolve mm-hmm. and and certainly this one does that absolutely it is a true classic if any of our bookends have yet to go and tackle it do not be afraid I feel like it's one of those books where everybody's read it so you're a bit kind of worried about maybe tackling it these classic novels that we think are a bit beyond our reach it is absolutely accessible for any reader and it is so readable and so interesting and nuanced and it's it just is a cracker it is really is a good choice yeah oh i'm 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 loving it so yes loving it again i should say (laughs) lydia's more of a rereader than i am but like neither of us are authors so i always find it so interesting to see what people are reading whilst they're writing you know some people don't like to read anything at all we've had authors come on and say that they can't read anything whilst they're writing but quite a lot of of authors have said that they prefer to reread and I know my friend who's an author as well like she loves to go back and reread things while she's writing because she finds that if she reads something new that she tends to start writing in their voice and I thought that's so interesting this for me it's not but I can't I think because my head is so much in whatever I'm working on at that moment I just I don't have the headspace to take on a new story so going to something old and familiar means you're still you've got your head in in, in a book which is you know we love we obviously I'm giving them your podcast you obviously love it too but it's it doesn't have that same challenge and I feel stupid I feel so stupid when I can't get into something because my brain is just blocked so this is uh <laughs> this is my way of feeling a bit less stupid as well no it's such a great book so I'm really glad that you've mentioned that 
Now, I really want to get on to all the little liars. So I want to get started by asking about the inspiration for your book. And at the start of the book, you write that the book is inspired by various true crime cases. And I'd, I'd love for you to speak in a bit more detail about the particular cases that inspire the book. Yeah, for sure. Well, I lo- I'm fascinated by true crime. I love it. I'm an absolute true crime nerd, which is, uh, <laughs> I-, I own it. So for me, it's, it's, it's wonderful to tap into real life cases, not to recreate them. This I write absolutely right fiction, but to use them as jumping off points. It kind of, it gives my, it gives me as a storyteller, I have a different, a different sense of something if it's tapping into something that was real. So All the Little Liars really taps into two different cases. One is, are you guys familiar with the Skylar Nice case? Have you heard of that? No. No. Oh, good. Then I get to tell you about it. So this is a crazy case from um, Virginia about 15 years or so ago, where two 16-year-old girls stabbed their best friend to death. And later, They confessed to the murder. But when they're asked, why did you do it? All they can say is, we didn't like her. And yeah, I can see your faces. And that's exactly how I felt too. And when I when I first read about this case, it was years ago, but it stayed with me. It was one of those ones that just drips through your brain. And I was just fascinated by the idea of the the psychology of teenage. I'm really interested in psychology. So I studied criminal profiling and criminal psychology. So that's something that always gets my brain going anyway. But I was really interested in um, the volatility of teenage friendships, how high passions run at that age. I'm a mother of teenagers myself, so I've seen firsthand Clearly, it was not the case with me. I was perfect in every way. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I've seen firsthand how rationality as a teenager goes out the window and your brain is obviously flooded with hormones and emotion and everything else. So I was really interested in what could possibly motivate two girls to kill their best friend. So that was one side of the coin. I've also for a long time been interested in Charles Manson. Not so much the man himself, but the hold he had over his so-called family, this hypnotic effect he had on them. How how does a man particularly like that? He wasn't even good looking for goodness sake. You know, he thought he was charismatic. I mean, but when you listen to his ramblings, I mean, they just sound like nonsense. And yet he had this absolute hold over his group. I mean, they just did these extraordinary things because of what he said. Um, And so I was really interested in that aspect too. And so those two cases, I guess, over time began to mesh a little bit in my mind as, as an but the other thing I'm really fascinated in, and it's a more recent development for me, is the ripple effects of a crime on the people affected by them. So not just the direct victims' families, but the perpetrators' families possibly. So in Truly Darkly Deeply, which was my previous novel, I explored um, a serial killer's legacy through the eyes of his daughter, for example. So to my mind, she is still a victim. She didn't know what he was doing. She wasn't responsible, but she was jolly well affected. And in this novel as well, it's, it's looking at the ripple effects of a crime on the community, on the family, of the people left behind. So it was, it was all of those things coming together for me that, that really provided the inspiration. Amazing. Have you read The the Girls by Emma Klein? I knew you were going to other Emma. <laughs> yes, I have. I love The Girls. It's just so brilliant. good. It's so good. But this is different. So The Girls and what she does, um, Emma Klein, isn't it, does so yeah. brilliant is she recreates that sense of being in Manson Circle. And it really is very much like that. It's almost just name changes. But for me, I'm not doing that. This isn't a book about Manson. Yeah. It's about teenage teenagers, uh, the relationships between them, where those relationships can go outside of hood. So um, the girl at the center of the story is very much an outsider. She struggles to make friends. So it explores teenage angst. And we've all felt it. I mean, whatever your teenage experience was, there was always likely a moment when you had a, a sense of not belonging or desire to belong. So I was really exploring this, you know, how far will you go? Will will any of us go to belong? 
Mm -hmm. Um, And hopefully then it's a question that even later in life we can ask ourselves as well. So not just teenagers. I mean, it's not a book for teenagers. No, but I went to a girl's school and I definitely saw how the the effect of all those hormones and how actually I was so surprised at like how aggressive like teenage girls could be. Like the amount of fights that I saw in a girl's school, it was just... Yes, because you think of it as a boy thing, don't you? But girls, I also went to an all-girls school. So yeah, that level of bitchiness and frustration is just, it's extraordinary. I'm really tapping into that a lot. Yeah, definitely. I just wanted to touch on, obviously you've declared yourself a true crime nerd (laughs) and um, you do co-host a a crime podcast and I know that you also um, have written opinion pieces on true crime for the independent why do you think that true crime has become such a like cultural phenomenon in recent years it is a phenomenon isn't it I mean I know you got poll that says I think something like a third of all Americans consume true crime at least once a week, which is extraordinary when you think yeah. of it. You know, TV and in books. I mean, it's just amazing. It's not a completely new phenomenon. That's the funny thing. I think as society, we've always been interested in crime. You look at like the Penny Dreadfuls, for example, from the 19th century and, you know, even Madame Dauphage at the gallows, you know, they're you know, this interest in what is actually out there and the fear. But I think now it's it's come more into the mainstream and possibly that opened it up to more people. And I think as a society, we're aware more perhaps of the dangers out there. Certainly as a mother, I'm super aware of dangers in a way that I think my parents weren't aware years ago. Like we talk about grooming now, don't we? And and predators. And my parents didn't really think about it. We played in the road. You know, they weren't watching us. But I would never do that with my kids. I mean, my kids are teenagers now. They do not do that anyway. But do you know what I mean? You just, it's different. So we are aware of the dangers and being aware makes us frightened. And when we're frightened, we want to protect ourselves. So how do we protect ourselves? We effectively research what is actually out there and we put ourselves in the shoes of victims. So a lot of these true crime shows, they say most of them are consumed by women. Actually, I think like 80% of true crime is consumed by women. And psychologists say the reason for that is a survival instinct. We're literally looking, well, if we were there, how would we defend ourselves? What would we do? So I think I think there's a little bit of that. It's like there's a lot out there that we're aware of. So now we need to be even more aware. Honestly, one of my favourite shows ever is a show called Snapped, which is basically <laughs> basically about women who either kill their husbands or like, you know. The, um, I had me up this morning, so he is very much in danger of that later. Well, this is it. And it's a fantastic moment in every single episode where the, the voiceover guy just goes, and then she snapped. But I oh yeah, I have to say there's nothing better than a binge watch of uh I know, right? But I love the ones that get into motivation. So even I mean mind is one of my all time favourite books and shows actually, and I know it's it's true crime. I mean it's based on it, isn't it? But what what they're doing is less about the glamorization of the killer or the getting into the story. It's really, really as the as the name suggests, getting into the mindset. Yeah. What's so interesting, like you were saying with the snap is this idea that one on the one hand, yeah, we're looking at, well, what if we were victims? But also there is an element where, it's only like Making a Murderer, do you remember that show from like way back then? And it was this idea that actually, put in the right situation, could we all, as you put it, snap? Could we all do something? Certainly where my mother-in-law is concerned, the answer is probably yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is is fascinating. And and I think that 
you know, we're definitely consuming a lot more true crime. And I think that, that I, I'm a bookseller and I've, I've noticed a lot of people who have started to gravitate towards more more crime fiction and things because, oh, I've, I watch loads of true crime and I want to I want to start reading it. And it's a brilliant way of like introducing people into, you know, into books. Yeah. And yeah, and it's just, it's one of those things where it, it's a great kind of way to to link it, you know, yeah. to be able to say like, well, you know, if you love that program, if you love making a murder, here's yeah. a great book that you'll like. Yeah, exactly. I think that's absolutely right. And so people who read my books tend to, funnily enough, they, they do watch Love True Crimes. There's a lot of elements in the books where it's there's a story, but I also use, I always get muddled if it's actually called this or if I made the term up, but real media. So you've got like blog posts, extracts, articles. And so a lot of readers say it reads like a true crime story like it's almost like you're watching a tr- one of those true crime shows yeah absolutely so again that was my nerdiness coming in possibly <laughs> we, we love, love a nerd we <laughs> love a nerd don't you worry you're amongst friends so talking a bit more about the book itself yeah um one of the key elements and just for those listening will hopefully be a spoiler free episode so feel free to continue listening don't panic um but one of the key elements of the book is about friendship and about the, the sometimes the toxicity that can be involved in friendships we've touched a little bit on it before and we do see the difficulties of primarily of the teenage girls and their kind of relationship to each other was this the theme that you particularly wanted to hone in on in terms of you know this age and the way that girls interact and can be influenced by each other yeah, because it, because of the story it all came out of. So it came out of this case, like I was saying in the States, that was based, literally, they were teenage girls themselves. So it was obviously therefore necessary to, to explore that side of, of the psyche, the teenage psyche. And it fascinates me. And I guess because I have teenage children as well, that was another reason. And it's, I was saying, I, I went to a talk, I did a talk yesterday, and I was saying, as writers, we subconsciously put whatever is preoccupying us at the time into our novels. So with Truly Darkly Deeply, I was homeschooling my two boys. It was during lockdown and, I, you know, the world was falling apart, wasn't it? And I was very aware of my parenting, you know, what I was doing to them and how I could help them and maybe how I wasn't helping them. And I guess at the heart of that book, yes, it's about a serial killer and his daughter, but it's also really a question of parenthood, the impact that parents have on their children. And so similarly with All the Little Liars, my younger son has just turned 13. My older son is 16. And so they are teenagers. And I suppose what is my deep down preoccupation? Well, fear, I guess. Fear of what that teenage world holds for them. The idea that they are no longer little children that I can keep safe like little ducks, you know, as I'm, I'm no longer a mother duck for them. They are going out into the world. They are spreading their little ducky wings. I'm sorry, I need to change that metaphor. It's a bit rubbish. But you know what I mean? So, so that is, a, yeah. I guess, my deep down preoccupation. So I wonder if that's why, why was that case I honed in on all the other cases out there? Why was that the one that was in my brain going nickety nick? And so maybe that's why as well. So there's always something that's, else. I love it. I love it. And it's, I feel like it's uh, something that is very, and this is what I think makes it more scary and thrilling, is because it is very real. It feels like it can happen. And obviously, we, we see it in real cases of, of people being influenced to do things or, you know, falling in with the wrong crowd and then it having, you know, ridiculous yeah. consequences. And what I really love in a crime novel is that kind of relatability, which this I does think- really well. 
I was talking to my editor about this, and I think this is literally what it's always about. Like, if you have a book where you don't can't imagine that you might be that character, then you're not going to really invest in it in the same way, are you? Um, no. And I think in this book is obviously it's told through the voice, actually not, not of the girls involved, but of the sister of one of the girls. Mm-hmm. And so that hopefully as well, it's like, well, okay, maybe you couldn't imagine stabbing your best friend, but could you imagine having a sister who maybe felt like she was growing away from you and maybe falling into influences that you didn't like, but also you couldn't do anything. And every time you try to say anything to maybe your father or whoever, our mother is dead in the story, whoever else, that you're seen as just being jealous or selfish, but you can see something isn't right. But as a child, you're completely impotent. So there's lots of different strands, I think, maybe, I hope, in this book that people can put themselves in those people's shoes, perhaps. Definitely. Um, I really wanted to actually, with you just mentioning about perspective, I really wanted to ask about the perspective that you chose to write the book from. And as you've said, it was the sister of one of the teenagers involved in this case. The perspective that it's told from is somebody that that wasn't, don't know if I can say this, but wasn't witness to the case. I can say that. Wasn't present. Yeah. I, I wanted to know why was it important to you to have it from an outsider's perspective and, and why did a sister feel like sort of the right role rather than, say, a parent? Hey, it's a brilliant question. So I said at the beginning, one of the things I'm really interested in is the ripple effects of a crime on the people left behind. So the sister is left behind and it's a dual timeline narrative. So we see the whatever is happening happening in the past tense and we see the repercussions of that in the present tense. And you've obviously got the drama of there's a journalist who comes along and, and knows more now about the case. So the girls that are arrested, they they confess to the murder, but something never quite gels about that. Something never quite feels right. And so you have a, a situation where maybe now the truth can come out that's, that's haunted her for so long. So the ripple effects, um, my interest in the ripple effects of a crime is why I chose a sister, or rather not, not one of the girls directly. Why a child? I think because of the sense, like I was saying, of, of impotence. So there's a... I don't know if you know about this um, this character in Greek, it's, I don't know if it's Greek mythology, ancient mythology, let's say, called Cassandra. I remember learning about this at school. So Cassandra was, for whatever reason, she was cursed by one of the gods to see the future, but never be believed. And I thought that's always makes me tingle. Like when I think of that, I mean, can you imagine? You can see bad things happening, but nobody listens to you. How dreadful that would be. Horrific. And <laughs> so what if you have a child? I mean, nobody's listening to a child. So this character, Finn, who is the sister, sees that there is something wrong with with the friends of, of, of her sister and sees that there is, she doesn't understand, she's a child. And by the way, the not understanding is a part of it as well because I need her confusion to come through and for the reader to figure out more than the character at the time is. So the reader is is more aware because they've had the details in the present day and we've got all the blog posts and whatever else coming through. But that that sense of not being able to do something about something was something I was playing with as well. Yeah, I love that. And I'm the oldest. Of, I've said this on the podcast before, so listeners are probably like, okay, you've said this a hundred times, but <laughs> I am the oldest um, of four girls and the reading it from a sister's perspective like I it made it all the more like visceral for me because I was like I don't even know what I would do like if if one of my sisters did something like that because you know it's it would be so out of character for my sisters and like how do you even comprehend that like how do you get your head around that you think you know somebody so well and then they just like do something as I don't know what the right word would be it's it's so like things will they bring situation that you just would never imagine that they were in 
Yeah. She can't. She can't imagine it. And that's like, and so I was struggling with this book a little bit because I needed the reader to know certain things that this character Finn couldn't possibly know. And I was like, how do I get that in? And that's why I began to use the device of her sister's diary. So mm. there are ways of being able to tell the, the reader something. But yeah, exactly as you say, you just, you never, in fact, this is, um, I'm playing with an idea for my new book and it's this idea that you never know the people. You just, you, how well, we think we know our parents, don't we? But how well mm. do we know our siblings or whatever? There's always, there's always a secret side. Yeah. We had um, Megan Nolan on the podcast a bit ago, and I don't know if you've read her latest book, Ordinary Human Failings, but that is based on inspired by true crime cases. And it's a young, I don't know how, how old the character was. Do you remember, Lydia? What, the young girl? Yeah. She's about eight. Yeah, so very young. And she, and... And she's, you know, responsible for a murder and it's, it calls into question the whole idea of like nature versus nurture and all that kind of stuff. And I always find that topic like so fascinating. But then you yeah. look at it that there's this one sister that's, you know, never done anything like that, but they've been parented in the same way and they've been brought up in the same way. So like yeah. how, where does that switch come from? You know, it's yeah. it's so fascinating. I find it fascinating too. I was reading um, as part of my studies for criminal profiling, this um, guy, Robert Ressler, he, was, he worked at the FBI. And he talks about how serial killers, they all have the same background. They, they all have a cold and distant mother. They've all had emotional neglect, you know, various things they've all got in common. And yet he says, there are hundreds, thousands of other people who've also had those same upbringings who do not go on to become serial killers. So what is it exactly as you say, what is it? And I used to be so interested in that. So my series fiction that we talked about before, the Ziva McKenzie series, was really all about what makes a monster. It's exactly, exactly as you say. But I think I've sort of, I'm evolving, I'm graduating, whatever, whatever the expression is. And I'm now less interested in what makes the monster and more interested in what is the impact of the monster. Mm -hmm. And I love a mystery. So my books are obviously very twisty and there's hopefully a mystery at the heart where, you know, you don't know what you're getting. You just, you just, there's not, hopefully they're quite suspenseful. But ultimately that is, that is the preoccupation. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, you do it very well. <laughs> and bookends, like, will know. I, like, I love a good binge of a book. Yeah. But, oh my goodness, could I not put this down? Yeah. I was just, so, and it is, like you were saying, there are twists and turns in it that you wouldn't ever expect. Yeah. And it is so well, well done. One of the things that I found quite fascinating about it was that the kind of main setting of it was in 2003. And you had this really brilliant way of kind of intertwining real events and, yeah. you know, highlighting moments that kind of helped to situate us. Oh, okay, we're here now. What was that like to create? Was that a kind of like, I'm going to research 2003? Or, or was it just that, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to find some cultural events and, and try and put them in? Or well, actually, can you tell us a bit? A bit of both. So actually, the cultural events so the Iraq war was obviously the huge one at the time and you had um do you remember they were they were literally they were at this point trying to get Saddam there was you know and they kept they kept messing it up not messing it up that sounds terrible but do you know what I mean it kept going wrong for them and so for me there was there was obviously that element of cultural contextualizing so to situate the reader exactly as you say but also the cultural events that I cite the music, whatever it was, because there is all of this stuff waving in, is always a metaphor as well for whatever is happening in the book at the time. So, for example, I think, I'm probably going to get this wrong now, it's a while ago since I wrote it, but there was a point where I think the Americans did a raid on somewhere. They had some information and they thought they were going to get him. They were like, yes, okay, we've got him. And he wasn't there. So it was that moment of, we think we're there. Not. And in the book, something similar has happened. You think that you're going to get an answer. You're about to get there. And then suddenly you don't. So there was that 
and I can't think of all the other <laughs> the other bits now to show you, but I do something similar as well with Truly Darkly Deeply. So, for example, there's an element with the royal wedding with Charles and Diana. And do you remember we all thought it was a fairy tale wedding at the time and it was just like, whatever. But now, of course, we know it was far from it. And ditto, in this case, the relationship in Truly Darkly Deeply with my characters, the father and the mother characters. So there was obviously a lot of disconnect going on where actually on the surface it seemed very fairy tale like so i like to i like to do that a little bit as well so there's always there's always hidden messages and what i write really but you don't it's have so to. Fun. <laughs> it's so much fun honestly it's brilliant it really is and I, I cannot recommend it enough for like book clubs and things like mm-hmm. that this is a great book to chat about and discuss and i feel like a lot of people will have lots of different opinions about motive and you know what happened and what they think should have happened and it is a great book club book oh thank you i can totally see this being adapted as well i know lydia's probably gonna roll her eyes at me because i love an adaptation but i love an adaptation yeah i can totally see this being adapted like it's just and it's really hard to do this spoiler free because the temptation. I know to it's talk so hard. You. Even I have to think when I'm answering your questions, how they think. The temptation to talk to you about different moments in the book. Yeah. And be like, oh my god, like I. <laughs> it was fun to write. That was really fun. I, I can imagine. imagine. Yeah, yeah. With um, I love I love to turn things on the head. But you know, it's funny. I don't know if you find this with a twist. It can't just be thinking of another way of doing it, thinking of somebody that nobody else thought of or whatever it is. It has to absolutely work. So a twist can't just feel hammered on, can it? It has to, every breadcrumb has to be there. So my hope is that when you get to that twist, which is obviously the one you're thinking of, that people then feel the need to go back almost to the beginning and reread it with that in mind. So that's that's my hope for it. I was thinking that I really want to go back and reread it, knowing the things that I know. So this might be one of the one of the handful of books that I actually go back to. <laughs> yeah, it was so so much fun to read. Whilst also, you know, it's it's dark and it's you know it's so many different things, but it was also so exciting and twisty and fun. Aww. And I think you know, like Lydia said, this would be such a brilliant book club pick. And also, you know, I can imagine this being a great book to take on holiday with you because, I mean, if I did, I wouldn't be doing anything else on a holiday. I would. But it's so good. Now, obviously, I've just touched on it, but there there were some um, pretty dark and, and tricky themes in the book. But I felt that you explored those really well. And, you know, there, there were themes like, um, so just trigger warning for anybody. Um, but there were themes like grooming and and sexual abuse of, but sexual abuse of, of children essentially on the page. If you see, what I mean, not on the page. I don't know. I just I I couldn't write that. I just think it would. I just couldn't. So it's all very much just implied rather than shown. If you see what I mean. Yeah, I, I imagine they were difficult things to navigate in your writing. And um, what I wanted to ask were, were there any significant choices or changes that you had to make whilst writing to ensure that these things were portrayed truthfully um, or if there's a way that you wanted to navigate them in a certain way? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, how to navigate them is, is the important thing. So yeah. everything is off camera and you don't see, I mean, there's no blood in the book. You don't, I mean, I'm quite squeamish, so I hate books where it's lots of blood and gore. So there's nothing like that. And ditto, I hate books where you see actual sexual violence. I just can't deal with that. Yeah. Into that, it's a bit different. You can just, you just get a sense of something that's happening. And I think in a way that can actually be more powerful also, because you just let the reader's imagination fill in the gaps. And that's the wonderful thing about a book. You can do that. You're you're in a relationship with the reader, which I love. So yeah, it was very much a choice not to to put it onto the page, actually. That's not the sort of book I, w- I wanted to write at all. 
it's more about the psychology, I think, of it, which is what fascinated me. And in terms of changes, no, I mean, I putting Izzy's diary in was was actually a big. There was a there was a point where I was just like, there's something missing. It's just not quite there. How do I do it? How do I do it? And I couldn't figure it out because it would be ridiculous for the sister to know certain things that I needed the reader to know. It'd be nonsense. You know what? They just happen to overhear a conversation. I mean, rubbish. That doesn't happen. So putting and it's not massive amounts, but just a few diary pages sort of interspersed was my way as well of, of dealing with that and getting a different voice coming through as well. So that been she's been called an unreliable narrator, but I think it's more that she just has a perspective. So the idea is the reader needs to kind of figure things out too. The reader is reading this book is kind of playing detective as well. They're given everything that in fact my character is not given. So can they figure out the truth before she does? Yeah. I, and I think I would actually disagree that she's an unreliable narrator mm. because it for me, it, it's not because she is intentionally trying to mislead the reader. Yeah. She's just, this is just the information that she has to hand. So this yeah. is all she can think. Yes. So, so yeah, I, I don't think I would call her an old No, I, that's exactly how I feel. And she has filters. She's a child. So again, yeah. doesn't have that emotional maturity to make sense of what she's seeing. And yeah. although it's a retrospective voice, because I think it's, otherwise I think it can be quite difficult to write a child. So you have sort of that retrospection coming in. You still, I still wanted to keep that child filter on there as well. Thought that was important. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I feel like it, it's, I don't know, it's sometimes it's, makes it more of a mystery because it's up to us to try and figure exactly. out and it is up to us to fill those gaps in yeah. and like like we were saying about things that are real make it more scary I think yeah. sometimes when you haven't got all the information and yeah. you do start having to think about what could it be or yes. what could have happened yes that nine times out of ten your imagination is going to be worse than what yeah. it actually no. is yeah yeah <laughs> no I 100% agree there's a story I always tell about Val McDermott and I forget which particular book it is but she has a, a, a story or whatever it is about there's a child abuse and character is, is looking at child porn on the computer and apparently somebody went up to him misquoting and everything else but went up to her at some festival and started lambasting her how could you write such a disgusting scene you should be ashamed of yourself blah 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 and just like she's just sitting there quietly you know letting this person say what they're saying and at the end she said actually I didn't write any of that you did so it was their imagination again that filled yeah. and so exactly your point it's it goes to different places and I think that's where the reader puts themselves into the book which is really again we were talking about relatability before that is what it's all about. You are in a relationship with the reader. And so every reader will interpret a book differently because their own experiences are different and colouring their perception of the story. Yeah. And just to let our listeners know, you know, obviously I gave trigger warnings and we spoke about the the topics that, that you explore in the book. But I think, as you said, you know, you don't directly show anything on the page. Yeah, I and that's why I think it was explored so well, because it's not, it isn't something that's going to traumatise somebody. It's not that kind of book, you know, but it does, I think it's an, it is important to mention those things, especially considering the cases that this is inspired by, because, yes. you know, these things happen and these things have happened. So it's not something that you can just avoid. But it would be untruthful. And un yeah, exactly. 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 But you just, ha you handle them really well. I think, you know, for, for that reader that approached, um, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Val McDermott. Yeah. yeah. I know, it's the harder one. <laughs> but I think, you know, the, the reader that approached her in that way, like it's, it's clearly something that they felt immensely triggered by. But yeah, yeah. writers can't just avoid writing about these things because they do happen. They do. And it, it makes, you know, it makes a sense of what happens as well. I mean, Charles Manson, obviously, there was 
you know, exploitation going on. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that was one of the questions I was asking myself at the very beginning, you know, what would it look like if Charles Manson were alive today? It wouldn't be a load of sort of hippie community type stuff. It would be, it would be different. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think following on from that, one of the things that, and we have touched on this before, but that I found the most impressive, I've not heard if impressive is the right word, but most impressive thing impressive. about impressive. You can have it. But yeah, one of the things that I found most impressive about it was that this is a book that completely avoids cliche and sensationalism. There is no element in it where you feel like it's not victim centered. Or it does, like you were saying, it explores those left behind when something traumatic happens in a family. I know that you are you are, you are fascinated with that, but do you think that this has become more of a trend nowadays for people, particularly for readers, looking for victim-centred novels as opposed to, this is my opinion, but I would say 10, 15 yeah. years ago, we were looking at more kind of like gory and sensationalist fiction. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant question. It's certainly what I'm going in my writing. I don't want to celebrate a killer. I just, um, Patricia Cornwall read Truly Darkly Deeply and what she said to me was exactly that. It's great because you do not celebrate the killer. And yeah. so, you know, I just sort of refer to the celebration of a killer as another line I use because it, it, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. It's not or rather not do. It's interesting. I think there is a bit of a movement towards it. I mean, we've seen books like Notes and Execution, for example, and there are others mm-hmm. like that that are moving, definitely moving towards more victim-centered stories. But I still have, I don't know, I don't know how popular they are, but there's still a lot of books, serial killer books particularly, where to my mind there is a sort of glorification. I, I call it a serial killer porn, which sounds terrible, but it does it does feel like there's a sort of over-exploration or even exploitation of the violence. You know, the description of these disgusting things that these serial killers, I can't think of obvious ones, but, you know, really, really over the top. You know, they've they've done this and they've done that and, Daddy, daddy, da, and getting into the minds of the killer. I don't know. I, to my mind, that is, I'm starting to find that quite distasteful, to be honest. Mm. I think there is, for some people, there's an appetite, clearly, otherwise it wouldn't be being published. I hope that as a society, we are more interested in the victims because they are the ones that matter. But I think by the same token, society is always interested in the bogeyman as well because that's the thing, like we've said at the beginning, that's the thing that scares us. So I don't know. I don't know where it's actually moving to. I only know where I'm, where I'm trying to go, I guess. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you've got to write a book that's exciting. So, you know, so I've got, yeah, they're victim-centered, but there's still mysteries, there's still thrillers, hopefully, and just thrilling in a different way, maybe. I think it's a great example, this book, of how you can do that and how it doesn't have to be body after body after body. And, yeah. You know, and, and usually, let's face it, it's young, vulnerable women who are at the centre of these stories that are kind of used as, I mean, I don't want to besmirch crime, but they are kind of used as fodder you know because let's chuck another victim in as opposed to what you want to read which is a a story that explores why that's why i'm interested in i'm so interested in the why the why Mm -hmm. do the things we do what is the effect how do we and also i hope my books are a bit hopeful as well so i try i try to sort of there's always an element of redemption at the end there's hopefully an uplift they don't end on a dark note where you just feel Mm -hmm. bloody miserable when you put the book down (laughs) There's hopefully, you know what I mean? So this yeah. character, she's, she's been through absolute hell and the book obviously is opening when she's in the middle of, you know, dealing with that still. But by the end of the book, there is an arc where she has found resolution effectively. Hopefully it hasn't been tied up with a bow because I hate that as well. Yeah. Uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's still, 
it's still hopefully hopeful ending as well. Yeah, it absolutely is. I really want to move on now to a character that I really loved. I don't know if you're going to know straight away which one I'm talking about, but I really loved Dita. I until you're going to say that I loved writing Dita. She oh, I love her so amazing. <laughs> and, oh. But she is the, for our listeners, she's the housekeeper and nanny to the two sisters in the book. And it felt like she went above and beyond in, in the role that she plays in their lives. Yeah. And, and she felt like a a truly valued like family member to them you know she wasn't I think there's a danger to sort of dismiss these people as just being I, th- I mean she is offended in the book and referred to as yeah. help, the help yeah, exactly. but you know she's she's not that to this family she's so much more than than just the housekeeper and the nanny and I wanted to know what was the inspiration for for featuring this character in this family dynamic you know the inspiration we talked about classics at the beginning my all-time favorite book in the world is to kill a mockingbird and so I think I think you don't always know exactly where it's come from but I had read that recently and Calpurnia is of course that housekeeper character and so in a similar situation my two girls in my story are motherless so the mother has died in a car accident when they were young this is one of the reasons why um Finn's sister has social issues she's never really dealt with her trauma I won't bore you with going into it all but that that's obviously an issue so the dynamic is quite similar in that you've effectively got a father raising his his two children in this my story they're two girls of course in Columbia but they're a boy and a girl but he's a judge so he has this powerful job so he would have to get somebody to come in there's no way he would be able to just be a stay-at-home dad so he would have to have someone come in and actually uh Dita comes in before the mother has died even because I needed I needed the mother to almost give her the approval do you know what I mean like for the reader to, to know that was all okay as well and she becomes a mother figure these two girls so certainly for Finn who is three when her mother dies Dita is really the mother that she knows yeah. and so I guess one of the themes I was also exploring in the book was love you know we, we talk about how far would you go to belong but also how how far would you go for the people you love? How much would you sacrifice for them? What you know, what lengths? And and Dita is, you know, very much of that ilk. She sees the girls as her children, her cubs, and you know, and and likewise, they'll do they'll do anything fast. But she was fun. She was really fun because she has her funny little sayings, and so she's a. I think in in crime fiction, comedy is also important. Humor, not necessarily comedy, but she is the book's humor points. So her relationship between Finn, the sort of the the interaction between those two characters was yes a way of um obviously moving the story along and, and showing the themes but also is oftentimes the moments of light relief as well and she was such a great character and I, and I loved her so much and i don't know if you've read the book i think it's called now you see us by bali cord as well that was a great book and I, I always find it really interesting with the way that people write these kinds of characters that are like housekeepers and nannies and i think there's such a danger for people to sort of dehumanize them, if that makes sense. And and I felt like Dita felt like a fully rounded character. She you know she felt like a full human being, and mm-hmm. you explored her in all her complexities and all of the the wonderful things about her, and and the way that she you know really cared about these girls and, and took them on as her own. And I yeah I just loved her so much. And oh thank you. I think she's one of my favorite ever characters. Oh thank you. All I want is a hug from her. I know, right? Like, it was, exactly. I was literally like, I bet she's a really good cuddler. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's um, she's yeah, she was like I said, she was so good, and she was one of those characters I didn't have to think about. I just, in fact, I remember when I was um sending my synopsis to my editor. I think I must have already known who Dita was because she was sort of in the synopsis. Like she, there was one like one line about. I can't remember what it said. And Steph, my editor, was like, like, oh, I really like Dita. I'm like, she can tell that already just from the synopsis. 
Yeah, but that's what I mean. I think I knew her, like to be able to put that into into whatever it was. We love her and we love the book. The book is just absolutely incredible and we can't recommend it enough. Before we do let you go, I always love to ask this question to writers, which is what does a average kind of working writing day look like to you? Do you have little rituals? You got to have like a coffee? You go like... Tell me, please. Tell you. When it's a real average day, that's easy because I write my children at school and I do the drop off and I do the pick up. So then my writing is in between and the dog has to get walked and I have to eat lunch and all that stuff. So it's, it starts off with a dog walk after I drop off and then I come home and I write and then I, <laughs> I, I don't know, at some point my back starts to hurt because I've been sitting too long. So I go and kick the wall back with the dog and then I come back and then I write a bit more and have some lunch and then I write a bit more. So it's literally, I just fit it in. So that's, so that's my day. But the harder bit is when the kids are not at school, not because they're little and they need me all the time, but I kind of, I need not quiet, quiet. I don't care if there's chatting going on somewhere or whatever, but oh, my bloody kids, they knock, they, they <laughs> knock on my, I was going to say they knock on my door. They don't knock on my door. They barge in and they demand this, interrupting that. And so that's really hard. So in the holidays, I find I actually get up early. I like to have that. Of course, it's Sylvia Plath. She talks about that like special moment before the baby wakes, doesn't she? Yeah. I yeah. Have babies anymore. I've just got very noisy kids. But that's like <laughs> early time before they've got up and, and delightedly they're actually sleeping longer because they are teenagers. So that stretches now. So there are those those early point moments. And my favorite time, you know, my favorite, favorite time to write. And I always find my best work gets done here. It's like when the real edits get done. So all the last bit of time to get into shape. And it was over Christmas that suddenly it was like, bam. It, it got nailed. It just nailed it then. And that's because there's something about when it's, I definitely find this when it's dark outside. Yeah. And yeah. the house, there's something just, I don't even mean the spookiness, but the coziness maybe. Yeah. You know, and I just, that's when I just want to hunker down and I want to tell a story, you know, when the light's slow. So yes, yeah, so there's not a ritual as such. I write, I love to write. It's like you can't stop me writing. I could write anywhere. I do write anywhere. So that's how it looks. Long way to dance. Sorry to very. No, I love it. I love it. And are you the type of writer that kind of you say, right, okay, I'm going to write three chapters today or I'm going to write, you know, 10 pages or are you just kind of, I'm just going to see what comes out? Well, you know, it's not so much seeing what comes out because I plan. I plan really, really carefully before I sit down to write anything. So I always know where my story's going. Like I have a whole detail plan. It often changes as I go a little bit because, you know, you kind of get into the character's voice and you can't know properly the character's voice until you actually start writing. So there is always an element to change. So so I sort of, I know where it's going. Lots of writers, my, a lot of my friends, like, I've got to get X number of words down. My God, I would find that stressful. No, I don't. I just, I just write. And some days I write more than other days. And I have deadlines, you know, I know my editor needs to see my pages, but somehow it just works. You know, but it's not ever like, oh, I need to kill the muse before I can write. It's something like that. I just know if I sit. But then it's funny as well, because, you know, you sit down some days. I don't know if other people say this to you. And that sometimes the blank page is the most beautiful thing you can imagine because mm-hmm. anything can go on that blank page. And other days, it's really daunting yeah. because you just haven't started. But the minute you just, your fingers hit that keyboard, you just, I don't know, the fear goes and you've just, you're in it. You know, you're just in it. And it's just, it's kind of like magic. You know, there's a kind of magic in telling a story. Absolutely. So that very corny. I bet that sounds so No. I'm like, how do we get that as a soundbite? Let's make sure we think that. 
No, it's it's Salmon says corny things. <laughs> no, it's it's like very cool writer vibes. Like I want to be you. Like that's hard. Uh, I really don't. I just thought I'm in messy study. Do you not want to be? <laughs> Nothing in the fridge today. <laughs> Our final favorite question to ask is if you've been enjoying anything recently, and if you've got any recommendations for us. So it can be books, TV, film, podcasts, anything at all. Anything. Oh, that's a big old. You were going to give me a heads up to these questions. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I quite enjoyed. Well, I'm loving Catching the Ride, like I said. So I'm really enjoying it. What am I enjoying? I'm trying to think what I've watched. I watched something dreadful on Netflix. And my oh. husband is a star to finisher. And this wretched show, it went on for like five seasons. And oh. at the end of the first season, I'm like, oh, God, Tim, can we just watch something else? No, 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 we have to. I was like, but you don't even like it. I know. But I just need to know it ends. <laughs> so it felt like, you know, like TV time at the end of the day is supposed to be nice and relaxing. It felt like work because we just. <laughs> And I won't say what it is and be cruel like that, but it was just wretchedly wretched. We've now started, what's it called? Catastrophe. Oh, well, oh with Sharon, is Sharon Hogan. No, I really want to watch it. So you know what's brilliant about it? It's not the storyline so much, but the dynamic between the two characters, the dialogue. And I'm so into dialogue. So my books are filled with dialogue. I love it. And I think it's like the best way of getting character across is just the way they speak and the way they interact with other characters. So for me, it's not crime at all, but that interaction between these two characters, the interplay is just really, really good. So I'm, I'm very much enjoying that. And I'm also enjoying vanilla ice cream with hot chocolate sauce at the moment. So that's my other thing. Oh. <laughs> it's really hot to allow to eat ice cream, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. And I really want to go away and have that now for breakfast. Right? <laughs> Listen, I, I know where I'm going now. <laughs> Straight to the ridge. I thought to go right to the ridge. <laughs> now, we're obviously very sad because we have loved this conversation and I've loved, it loved your book. And um, so thank you so much. But for our listeners, your book, All the Little Liars, is out now and published by Quirkus. And I'll be popping a link in the show notes. I'm also going to pop a link to a couple of your other books in the show notes as well. Especially Truly Darkly Deep, please. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Truly yes. Darkly Deep. Because I think I might line that up now. That's the, <laughs> that's the one to read as well if you want yeah. to. You know what as well? And I don't know if I'm allowed to do this. And I should have cleared it with you first. So just edit it out if Go you don't want to it. But I have um, some gorgeous bookmarks my publisher sent across. So do you want me to send some over and maybe like the first five people to maybe like and rate this episode and go out and buy a book? We'll send them a book. Oh, well, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's okay. Oh, Sorry, I'll totally put you on the like, oh, No, no. no. Okay, so uh, let's do okay. it. Just let me know where you want me to send them and I'll... Let's um, do it. We will. Thank you. Yeah, your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> That's so amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, no. Now, where can our listeners find you on social media? Okay, so I'm on I'm on all the social channels. I'm on Twitter that we're not allowed to call Twitter anymore, which I'm at Victoria Selman. Although my son says now that they can't even use X because apparently Facebook and Microsoft own those trademarks. It's so though so that's gonna get rebranded, I guess, as well. So I'm on Twitter slash X slash we'll wait and see. At Victoria <laughs> Selman. I am on Instagram. I think it's just at Victoria Selman author, actually. And Selman is S E L M A N. And I think Facebook is probably at Victoria Selman as well. But if it's not, it'll be at Victoria Selman author. Oh, and I have a website and a newsletter. So my website is Victoria Selman author. There you go, dot com. <laughs> I'm so original. <laughs> I love that, but you're easy to find. So that's I'm easy, easy to find. Yes, I am. <laughs> and I'm pleased that you've got a, a newsletter as well because I was yes. signing up for that. Oh, do yes. <laughs> great. Um, but Victoria, thank you so much for coming on A Pair of Bookends. I've absolutely loved chatting to you. I've loved it too. Thank you for having me. You're such a ray of sunshine. Like you really are. Like 
<laughs> not seeing my books. <laughs> and listeners, please do go and buy the book and please do go give Victoria a follow. And if you would like to follow us, you can do so at Pair of Bookends Pod on Instagram and at a Pair of Bookends on Twitter and TikTok. And that is all from us. So thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.